Soil and Water, Conservation Conversations. This podcast connects you to local farmers that are utilizing conservation practices on their farms. You'll learn about the farm, the farmer, the conservation practice that they have successfully implemented on their farm, as well as the challenges they face and how they've overcome these challenges. Beyond feeding the world, clean water is one of the many ecosystem services agriculture can provide. Agriculture is not the problem, rather, it is the solution to protecting and improving our local water quality. My name is Kim Meyer. I work with a group called Yahara Winds, which is a collaborative effort to improve water quality throughout the Yahara watershed. Today, I'm here with Dr. Francisco Ariaga, Soil Extension Specialist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and UW Extension to discuss soil health. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Can you talk a little bit about what soil health is? There seems to be a lot of confusion about it amongst farmers. Just want to have some clarity on that before we dive in. So soil health to me, it's all about the function, right? What do you want out of the soil? And, and that's sort of broadly how NRCS also defines it. You know, in farming system, you just have to think about what, what are we after, right? We're trying to produce food, feed, the most effective way that we can economically, but also good production, good quality. We want to make sure that soil, which is essentially your engine, I guess, if you will, that is uh, helping produce that feed and, and food and grain, uh, it's that tipped up condition and functions properly. So that to me is usually when we talk about soil health is what about. But also uh, the other thing that soil health brings about it is, is the environmental aspect, making sure that we are producing the most efficiently way we can, but also without creating any harmful side effect to the environment. So can you talk a little bit about <coughs> some of the benefits of having improved soil health on a farm? Absolutely. So, so there's multiple benefits. So when we talk about soil health, we typically talk about the three-legged stool, right? The soil physical properties, the chemical properties, and the biological properties. And all of these are things that soil health integrates. And I think, I think that's the beauty of soil health. In soil science and in agriculture in general, we used to think about just fertility by itself, uh, soil physical properties if we had like compaction issues or crusting or things like that. And in the biology, yeah, we knew there was something going on there, but we didn't really understand and we still don't fully understand and we're learning more and more every time. And so some of the benefits, for example, that, that we're seeing are things that are related to all these properties, but are interlinked. So as far as like my area of work uh, that deals with hydrology and soil physical properties, uh, we see benefits to soil compaction. So we have soils that have better irrigation, have a lower risk for soil compaction and are able to hold the weight of a piece of equipment in the field better. Uh, from the fertility side, we, we see that some of the nutrient cycling sometimes actually is improved because of the increased biological activity. And then the biology is actually, at the end of the day, I think is the, the engine that is driving all of these. Um, the soil biology affects soil aggregation, affects a lot of the soil physical properties, as well as a lot of the chemical and soil fertility, if you will, properties. So you see a lot of different benefits from soil health, uh, improving filtration. I mentioned the reduced risk of, of compaction nutrient cycling as well, and then that biology that's driving everything. Can you explain what soil aggregation is? So when we talk about soil, we usually talk about the sand, silt, and clay, right? And we know those are the, the particles, and it's just defined by the size that they have, but also their properties as well. But the, the particles, the sand, silt, and clay, they're not in the soil just by themselves, right? The, the, I mean, they're in the soil, but they just do not exist as just single particles unless you have really, really bad conditions they actually tend to congregate, right, and, and form these clumps, I guess, if you will, that stick together. By themselves, if it's only sand, silt, and clay, those clumps are very fragile, I guess, if you will. They'll, they'll 
tear apart very easily. This is where organic matter comes into play. That organic matter acts as a glue in organic compounds and then sticks them together. So then it's this little clump. So if you ever dug a hole in, the, in a field, you know, with a shovel or what have not, you see that the soil doesn't come just as single grains of sand, like in a sandbox, it comes in, in, in little clumps and little pieces. So if you cl- look closer at that and you kind of take it into your hands and break it apart, it'll be afraid of soil. Uh, at that point, it'll become dirt, right? Because it'll get you dirty. Uh, <laughs> you break it apart, but you see these little clumps, you see these little pieces. Those are what we call the aggregates. And, and we even further define them depending on their size and depending on their uh, shape, what, what those aggregates are. And they have you know, a little bit different way they work. And so why is soil aggregation important? Uh, the way I, I'd like to talk about it is that when you have um, proper aggregation or aggregates in, in general in the soil, you have, imagine two of those aggregates together close to each other and you have a space between those aggregates. Those pores, those are that's basically pores in the soil, right? Those pores are larger than the pores that are between the single sand and silt and clay particles by themselves. So those larger pores between the aggregates are the ones where we get our benefit for infiltration and water drainage uh, through the soil profile. Uh, so they're very, very important for that scenario, right? For infiltration and drainage. But then that once that water enters the soil, we need some of that water to retain because the plants need to take up water. The, the water also goes in inside the aggregate, right? And then it gets in between the sand and silt and clay particles in between them. And that's where we get our re- water retention. That's where the water is held in the soil and that's where the plants get it. So it's that interplay again of the size of the pores, right? The bigger pores are gonna help us keep proper aeration in the soil, proper drainage and infiltration. And then the smaller ones are gonna help us retain water so our crops can use that water. We dug a pit at a farm for a field day this summer and you went into the pit and talked about some of the things that you saw. That farm, no-till farming, they had some low disturbance hog manure, it was currently a wheat field. Can you talk about some of the things that you saw in that soil pit that identified that there was some improvements in, in soil health? So that soil pit was really interesting, especially you know because of the location. That field, it's a very poorly drained soil, so quite honestly going into it, when you invited me to go to the, to the field day, I was not expecting to, to see much in that soil pit given the, the characteristics of the soil pit when I looked it up in the soil series. But I was very, very impressed. When we dug that soil pit, I was not expecting to see really good aggregation that we saw. I was not expecting to see uh, the extensive rooting system, especially from, from wheat, uh, which was a crop that was there before. We found some roots down to three, four feet of depth, which is pretty remarkable. We found a lot of uh, evidence of biological activity, earthworms and other things as well as fungi activity, uh, beneficial fungi, that is. So, so that's all pit. I was, I was expecting to see something that had uh, all the characteristics of poorly drained system, soil system, that is, such as, you know, the sulfur smell, you know, like rotten egg smell, that kind of stuff. And you see gray little models, little features, I guess, in the soil uh, as far as color. We didn't see anything of that. I mean, not even the smell, which usually is a, a, one of the first telltales that you see in that. And I didn't see any issues with drainage in that soil, even though that soil, obviously, because of the location, is close to a creek and also how it was mapped. It definitely had some issues. And it's close to actually, uh, as you move closer to the creek, you get into some muck right there, too. Uh, it, it was fantastic. The management that the farmer there was, was doing um, and has been doing for the last uh, several years has really improved that soil and the conditions there. 
When you were checking out the soil pit, the farmer asked about compaction. What did you see in that soil profile? So I was expecting, you know, being a soil that is poorly drained, and in theory, at least how it was mapped, I was expecting to see some compaction evidence. Usually soils that are wetter tend to have either more rutting, depending how wet they are, or more subsoil compaction or surface compaction, especially if, if you're running any piece of equipment for different purposes. But I did not see any evidence of that. I did not see, I, I even had a hard time finding the wheel tracks uh, where they had just gone through to harvest a wheat, uh, not just a few weeks before. And so the conditions were just fantastic. And again, that, that goes to show how that no-till system with the reduced disturbance of the aggregation of that house, I guess, if you will, that framework of the soil uh, is able to resist because it has better aggregation, is able to resist than the compaction effects of, of the equipment that we need to do for farming. So in that soil pit, you mentioned that you saw some fungi, perhaps some mycorrhizal. Can you talk a little bit about those things? Yeah, so a lot of times when we when we think about fungi, we think they're they're only the bad guys, right? But there's some beneficial fungi out there. One one that comes to mind is the mycorrhizal fungi. And what they are is a is a species of fungi that uh, create a, a beneficial association with the roots, with plants. And they do this with, with many, many plants. And so what they do is that they invade the root system of a plant, but then they grow out. And so essentially what they're doing is that they're getting some food, some of the uh, sugars that the plant and some of the materials that the plant is generating through photosynthesis to feed it itself. But then what it's doing is it's growing out into the soil uh, and forming these mats, what they call the macrosile uh, mats. They're extending the root system, and so they're absorbing water and nutrients that then they give that to the plant because the plant is feeding them. So is this is a beneficial relationship that that they form? The issue with mycorrhizal mats, and there's been a lot of work done in forests, and you'll see why in a second here, is that they're very fragile. So any soil disturbance will break them apart, and they will not then be connected to the plant anymore. And so they will have to then grow again and what have not. And these have been extensively studied in forest systems where they have uh, found out that these mycorrhizal uh, mats, because the soil is not disturbed that much in forest systems, not only extends the root system of a single tree, but also extends it to other trees and they connect other trees. So in a sense, it's a way that the trees communicate with each other. So if a tree is experiencing some kind of stress, you know, by insect attack or fire or what have not, they send messages, you know, and these are chemical compounds they send, that, that's the way they kind of communicate, to other trees that are adjacent to them, and then they have a similar response to that stress. And so this happens in, in also in crop systems where these mats actually link other plants and then also not only extend the root system, but also kind of it's sort of a, a, a highway, I guess, underground highway for messaging between different plants. And So it, they're pretty interesting, and we don't know enough about it in agricultural system. We're learning more and more. But we know from other work in soil science that they're very beneficial for the system overall. You mentioned at the soil pit that soil is an aquatic system. So mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit, bit more about that? I found that really interesting. So, yeah, absolutely. So, so if you think about it, at least in, in my view, when we talk about soil, we talk about the solid particles, right? And, and the solid particles go together and the organic matter is a glue that also clumps them and forms the aggregates. But we have this pore space, and I talk a lot about the, the pore space because that's where how we get our infiltration, water to drain into the soil and then and move through the soil, but also our water holding capacity. Um, so there's a lot of water in the soil, and water moves through the soil constantly. But if you think about it, that's also where the microbes live. Bacteria live in there, fungi live in there, and it's a wet system. So if, 
you know, it's an aquatic system in the sense that uh, it's not going to be like a river or an ocean, but there's a lot of water. There's there's also some air, but the microbes are not going to be living on the air pores, you know, the pores that are filled with air, but they're living in the water that it's between the salt particles and between the aggregates. That's, I think, to me, a different way of thinking about soils, right? That we are, when we talk about the physical properties, we are trying to uh, improve that structure, if you will, the frame of the house. So we are making a better conditions for the biology to exist. That in turn, that biology is coming around and actually is helping us build that framework as well, too. It's a kind of an interesting interplay that one thing affects the other. So, for example, if you go and compact your soil, you're destroying that structure, you're destroying the framework, right? You, you're breaking that up and you're affecting the pore space. So you're also then going to be affecting the biology because you're affecting where they live, their home, essentially. Can you talk about what farmers can do to improve soil health on their farm? So if we, if we kind of think about that whole idea of... Uh, this soil is an aquatic environment, and it's all about that structure, that aggregation. Anything that we can do to promote that uh, aggregate formation and, and sort of improve the pores in the soil. So not just the amount of pores we have, but also the distribution of pores, what, what people call the pore size distribution, would be beneficial. So we know that organic matter is key for uh, improving aggregation in the soil. So anything you can do to improve organic matter, increase organic matter in the soil, would be great for the soil. Some some examples would be manure. I think manure is really good for soil. Um, there are certain concerns and considerations we need to take, right, with, with manure applications as far as uh, making sure that we're not causing troubles with water quality. Cover crops are another fantastic uh, way of, of improving aggregation in the soil. Cover crops not only add organic matter to the soil, but you have the root system growing in, into the soil. And those roots exudate. They, they release sugars and different compounds that actually the bacteria and the, the biology in the soil love it. It's candy to them, essentially. And so they, they really like that environment, and they also then further promote aggregate formation. So anything you can do to add organic matter. But then on the other side, too, anything you can do to reduce the amount of disturbance to the aggregation, right? Um, just imagine if you come with a moldboard plow or some very excessive type of tillage. Think of it as a tornado going through a town, right? It's going to destroy that structure, those homes, when we do that, when we do excessive tillage, aggressive tillage, that's essentially what we're doing to the biology in the soil. We're destroying their habitat, and they have to then go back and rebuild. So anything you can do to reduce disturbance. And so there's different ways of thinking about it, right? So one extreme would be no-till, right? So we're not doing any type of tillage, and the only disturbance is from the planting equipment or what happened, right, or the equipment we're driving through the field. Think about also sometimes you could do some kind of rotational tillage or some kind of reduced tillage where... Uh, maybe this year after soybeans, let's say, soybean residue is really not that prolific, I guess, if you will. It, it crumbles easy. It's easy to, to manage. Why not just leave it be and not do any tillage after soybean, for example, or after wheat, for that matter, and just let it be? And then maybe the years that you have uh, corn uh, for grain, maybe, yeah, maybe there's too much residue. Maybe you can address that with some kind of uh, type of tillage. Uh, depending on your conditions and, and so on and so forth. So there's different ways you could do that. So it's not like, oh, you have to go completely like, oh, no tillage whatsoever now from now on. No, you can, you can kind of ease your way into it, kind of play, you know, with like, well, you know what? I'm not going to do tillage this year because I have this residue, at least on that field. I'm going to let it be. But here, you know, I have some concerns about the corn residue. After I harvest that grain, I'm going to let it be. Or if you go and rake uh, the stover, you know, you rake up that corn stalks and you're using it, there's going to be a lot less residue there. So maybe just let, let it be if you don't have any ruts or anything that you need to address. You could do that. And then the other thing, last but not least, is, is to think about your soil fertility. You know, we're talking about things that you can do to improve soil health. 
to me, that's kind of the basics, right? And the stuff we really know a lot better than, than some of the other management, especially on the biological side. Make sure that you take, you know, your salt tests, uh, routine samples uh, with some frequency and kind of make sure that you have your pH where it needs to be. Make sure that your potassium and phosphorus levels where, where they should be, especially potassium. Uh, we're finding more and more issues with, with low potassium and uh, low potassium. A lot of times it interferes in with nitrogen uptake. So you might put nitrogen in the field, but it's not properly utilized because your potassium is not where it needs to be in the plant. You know, it's, it's struggling because of that. So those are some of the things that we could do to improve soil health. So there's some soil health measurements that are out there. What can a farmer do if they want to do some testing on their own to determine how healthy their soils are? I Usually what I say is the first thing you need to do a a routine soil test analysis like we've done in the past. Get your soil fertility in order first. You know, that should be the first part. So that's one one leg of the three-legged stool, right? Uh, Next then comes the the trickier part is assessing your physical properties and then the biology, right? And and we're still learning. We know enough about the the soil physical properties uh, that we can provide some some idea and maybe some recommendation. But the tricky part becomes the biology. And and the reason for that is that certain of those parameters, the biological parameters, uh, we, we tend to think that more is always better, but that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes more is just more, or at sometimes it could be detrimental. It could be bad for the condition. Uh, so there's several cell health assessments out there, and they try to cover, obviously, the three areas, you know, the chemical or fertility part, the physical part, and then the biological part. So if you're interested in assessing that in a field that you're kind of concerned uh, and kind of look into it, my recommendation would be Try to talk to somebody that, that you trust, your crop consultant or uh, extension outreach specialist. Don't think that one test is going to get you the answer. This is a long process, but start building your own sort of data set, if you will. Get a baseline kind of measurement, get some samples, send them in, then come back after a few years after you've done the practice, something that you're interested in, and take samples again, send them in, but send them to the same lab and to get the same type of test. So that way you're sort of comparing apples to apples. And kind of start seeing how things are shifting, right? So we know organic matter is important in general, but there's organic matter fractions. Sometimes I'm measuring these assessments. Some of those fractions uh, tend to be more sensitive to short-term changes where organic matter as as a bulk organic matter, the the one we typically get on the soil fertility report and the soil test report, that one takes longer, sometimes up to five, six years before we see any changes. But on some of those other uh, soil health assessment, there's some like the, uh, the active carbon, what people call the poxy. That one tends to react a little bit quicker sometimes. The uh, soil respiration upon rewetting, you know, that 24-hour type measurement is sort of a bulk uh, measurement of readily available carbon for the biology, for the microbes in the soil, uh, but also gives you an idea of the population of microbes as a whole, how well they're functioning too. So it's it's sort of a, a double, you know, what food do they have available there and how well are they eating it essentially. And so again, you know, I think the the, the best thing is to Kind of build your own data set, kind of look at your own conditions and see how things are changing over time. Um, as we move forward, I think, I don't know how long it's going to take, but we would like to have some kind of then recommendations like we do for our fertility salt testing, right? That your value of pH is below, let's say, 5.5. Hey, you, you might need to be thinking about applying some lime out there, right? So we're, that's where we're kind of going, trying to figure out what are the actual uh, measures that respond. And this is going to vary with region. You know, maybe in Wisconsin, we end up with uh, different regions as far as soil health, for example, not just different states. And uh, and then we would come up with some recommendation. We're not there yet, 
that's where we're headed. But for now, I think the best we can do is just kind of build your own kind of assessment. I mean, sometimes, you know, compare with your neighbors, somebody that has similar soil conditions, maybe similar cropping systems, or but they're doing something different. Talk to other farmers. I think that's that's one of the best ways to learn a lot of different things. So for people who are listening, is there a resource that they can turn to to learn more about soil health? Yeah, so I, I've been involved with a group of other specialists and educators across the Midwest. So is this organization or this group that we call ourselves the Soil Health Nexus. And within the Soil Health Nexus, if you go to their website, you can Google Soil Health Nexus. That's the name of the, the website, too. It's soilhealthnexus.org. There's a link there. It's a soil health toolbox. And if you go there, there's a lot of information, you know, for you to read if you want to learn more about soil health in general. In a lot of that, we try to tailor it for the region, but also we try to tailor it for the state. Another thing that is just sort of kind of new from the Soil Health Nexus is this uh, soil health matrix. So that is a very simple, we call it a 101 type uh, of app, if you will, where you can input your current practices for your state and it gives you scoring. And then you can play it's like, hey, if I change this, where will my score will go? And so you can kind of see that and, and kind of give you an idea and kind of get you thinking about what practices you might want to try and, you know, maybe what potential impact it could have. Well, thank you for your time today. Yep. Thank you for having me.